0: Well, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Just to begin, we're going to read just a couple verses here. Beginning in verse 26. Hear the word of the Lord now. Then God said, let us make man in our image And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Thank you for your pure, supernatural, inerrant scripture that you have given to us, that through your word we come to know our God. We come to know ourselves and by your spirit working through your word we are transformed into the likeness of our Savior, brought even from death to life. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you would accomplish your good purposes through your word. I pray for myself as I proclaim your truth this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Canada just passed a new bill, Bill C-4, through their House and their Senate. It passed with a unanimous vote. There was not a single vote against, not even from the conservatives. And so yesterday it became law in Canada. And the law is this. It is now a criminal offense to, and I'll just quote from the bill, to promote or advertise conversion therapy. So here's what the preamble of that bill says. I'll just read from it. The belief that heterosexuality, cisgender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions is what the bill calls a myth. So Canadian law says God's design for men and women and sexuality is a myth, And it is such a myth that it is now against the law in Canada to promote it. Anyone who says what the Bible says about homosexuality, transgenderism, about gender itself, is committing a criminal act. Calling anyone to repent of sexual sin in any of these areas is now against the law in Canada as of yesterday. And even positively, just... Saying what God's Word says about His design for us and for marriage and sexuality is also forbidden and punishable by law. So no one can be called to repentance. No one can even say in the positive what it is that God has created us for. The bill goes on to say that prison sentences of up to five years will accompany the crime of knowingly providing conversion therapy to a person. So in other words, if you say to a person, the way you are living your life is not the way God intended for you, let me walk alongside you and encourage you to turn from this and to turn to something better. That could mean five years in prison for you. A sentence of two years is possible for someone who simply, it says, is promoting conversion therapy. In other words, if, if if someone stands in a pulpit and says, You must turn from your sin, you must renounce it and run to Christ, they could go to prison for two years. That's the law in Canada. And so so, because of that, because that happened yesterday, next Sunday, January 16th, faithful pastors all across Canada will be preaching on from Scripture God's design. For marriage and sexuality, they will be doing so illegally, they will be doing so under the threat of imprisonment, declaring to the state that the Lord Jesus Christ alone is the one who defines marriage and sexuality, and that Christ alone will determine what is preached from his pulpits. The state will have no jurisdiction over Christ's pulpit the call's gone out for American pastors to stand on that Sunday in solidarity with our Canadian brothers and to preach the same topic on that day. And in truth, America's not so far behind Canada. I won't stand here next Sunday with the possibility of going to prison for what I'm about to say, but that day is coming our way and it's coming fast. So we're going to do that next week. We're going to stand with our brothers in Canada, and we're going to proclaim to our nation that Jesus Christ is the Lord of his church, not you. And so we're going to do a three-part little mini-series. next. The next Sunday is the Sanctity of Life Sunday, and so it seemed fitting to, to, to preach a word on that. And I figured, well, we don't want to start into Romans 10 for one week and then take two weeks off. Since we're already talking about con- uh topics that are a little bit controversial, why not go all in this Sunday as well? And so we're doing a little three-part mini-series, God's Good Design. This week, God's Good Design for us as male and female, specifically focusing on what we call complementarity in the sexes, that God has designed men and women differently, And they're meant to complement each other, to to work together. And in fact, when we try to undo that, we dishonor men and we dishonor women. You may in your house own a hammer, and you may in your house own a fine piece of china. And the truth is, they're equally important, depending on the job. They're very valuable for the jobs that they are designed to do, but you dishonor the hammer If you set it on the kitchen table at Thanksgiving lunch and try to serve food off of it. And you dishonor the china if you try to hammer a nail with it. Well, these topics that we're going to be talking about are slightly controversial. But friends, on on all of these topics, we're determined to stand on what the Word of God says about them. Regardless of what comes our way, regardless of how the culture feels about it, and regardless of how anyone who sits in these pews feels about it, we as a church will stand on the Word of God on these topics, and we will take what comes with that. We won't be ashamed of what God says about these topics. In fact, we will celebrate God's good design. So this week, God's good design of us as male and female. Have you you ever wondered... What would have happened if different historical things had played out differently? If you're a nerd like me, you have, in fact, wondered that. What if Adolf Hitler had gotten leukemia and died at the age of eight? What would the world be like? By the way, Kimmel has a road named Hitler Road. Just learned that yesterday. Heitler? Heitler? Well, it's spelled the same. Hitler Road. It's like when Joe Dirt called himself Joe Dirtay. It's not more fancy. All right. What if the South had won the Civil War? What kind, of, what kind of world would we be living in right now? What if George Washington had never been born? Well, the truth is these are all hypotheticals because God in his sovereign providential wisdom saw fit not to let any of those things take place. Why did he do things the way he did? Why didn't didn't any of those things go that way? Well, it's because in God's perfect, omniscient wisdom, he knew this would most glorify his name the way that things were. They happened the way they happened because God would be most glorified in that. Well, what would have happened if God had only created males? How terrible. There's only one worse scenario. (laughs) Or what if he had created three or four different sexes? Well, of course, God didn't do any of these things. Instead, God specifically decided to create two and only two sexes, male and female, to complement each other. Why did he do it this way? Well, it's because in his perfect omniscient wisdom, he knew two different yet complementary sexes would most glorify his name. The, The Word of God is very clear about this. And God desires that we would rejoice in his good design. But instead, many are ashamed to speak of the differences between the sexes. To speak of the Bible's teaching between the sexes. And I don't mean many out there in the world. I mean many in the church. Many in the church are influenced by the culture that surrounds us. And and they reject the Bible's clear teaching. There's either shame about it enough that we never talk about it, or there's outright rejection of it as outdated or misogynistic. What the Bible teaches is what is often called complementarianism. It just means that male and female are created by God with equal dignity, value, worth, but that God designed men and women differently, with distinct functions, and and they complement one another with those differences. Compliment doesn't mean they, they say nice things about each other. It's spelled with an E. Compliment means that they complete one another. That they, they make up what the other one's missing for one another. And so they are equal yet different, and their differences honor God and work together to reveal more of God, to accomplish God's good purposes. Well, the, the opposite of this in the Christian world, and it is what is most popular in Christian colleges and churches, is what's called egalitarianism, or sometimes called evangelical feminism. What they would say is, male and female are equal in dignity, value, and worth, and there is no distinction in function whatsoever. Any differences that exist are merely physical. We haven't gotten so far in the church that we can't look at men and women and say, there is some difference there. But I I once asked a, a professor at a supposedly conservative Christian university. Are you really telling us the only difference between men and women comes down to plumbing? And his answer was an unequivocal, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Our culture is not offended by egalitarianism. It sounds great. Men and women are created equal in the eyes of God, and there is no difference Between them whatsoever, except what we can see with our eyes, and our culture to that says, great, we we, we can go with that. It sounds so good. The only problem is, it's not what the Bible teaches, and it's not how God actually designed us, and so we dishonor the man, and we dishonor the woman. Biblical complementarity, then, can, can be understood simply as men and women are equal in value, but different in function. We're equal in value. Genesis 1, 27, which we read earlier, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You do not get any more valuable than that. Having been created in the image of God as a unique act of creature, unique and distinct from everything else that has ever been created. That is true of the man and it is true of the woman. Man and woman are equal heirs of the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit and they shall prophesy. We are are equal heirs of the Spirit of God, given to us in equal measure. We are equal heirs of salvation. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, Paul's not saying there aren't still Jews and Gentiles. He's not saying there aren't still men and women. He's not saying that there aren't still people who are enslaved and people who are not enslaved. He's saying when it comes to our justification, our salvation, our inheritance from God as Abraham's offspring, it's equally shared by all who have faith. History even shows wherever Christian influence is the strongest, women have always been treated with more equality, more dignity, more respect. The countries that have had the least Christian influence are always the countries that have the worst record on women's rights. Consider the the treatment of women in nations where Christianity has always been outlawed where the gospel has never really penetrated. Now, whatever impulse we have to say, there, there's beauty in all cultures and there's many wonderful things. You don't want your wife or your daughter or your sister or your mom to go live in one of those countries, do you? Christianity throughout history liberates, it lifts women up. And, and so are any conversation... About the sexes must begin with this truth. The Bible is crystal clear men and women are equal. Say it again men and women are equal. So don't leave here today and go, that Jason's a misogynist. Equal in dignity, equal in value, equal in gifting, equal in equally created in the image of God, equal heirs of salvation. So what that means is Christian men must lead the way in their respect and treatment of women. Because the Bible declares that we are equal. Christian husbands must treat their wives with love and tenderness and care. Christian fathers must treat their daughters the same way. Christian men should treat older women as mothers and younger women as daughters and women of the same age as sisters. This is the this is what the Christian faith ought to produce. Men and women are equal in value, but men and women are different in function. So open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. A controversial passage, certainly. We're going to be looking in verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8 where the Lord says this I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in the faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, we need to remind ourselves of something as we come to this passage. Paul's letter to Timothy is in a very specific context. Paul is giving Timothy instructions about the church. That's why Paul's writing to Timothy, this young pastor, pastoring in a difficult situation in Ephesus, and and Paul is writing Timothy a letter about how to lead the church. And so the context of these statements about men and women are in the context of the public gathering of the saints for the worship of God. We, we need to keep that in mind as we look at this passage. And I want to just look at, at five key phrases here in this passage. First is this. Look at verse 9. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. I don't want you to sit there and think this was not the day to wear the necklace. Shouldn't have braided the hair today. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying that women can't braid their hair or wear jewelry. But women in the first century often wove gold and pearls and jewelry into their hair for a specific purpose it was for the purpose of drawing attention to themselves. Look at me. Look at my wealth. Look at my beauty. The same was true for costly, showy clothing worn to to flaunt their wealth, to flaunt their beauty. And so again, Paul writing to Timothy about corporate worship in the church says that in the context of corporate worship, this sort of intentional drawing of attention to myself is actually drawing attention away from the Lord. The one whom we've gathered to worship, I am drawing attention away from him and intentionally onto myself. It's even causing other women to be envious. This is not fitting. So Paul instructs Christian women not to flaunt their wealth or beauty so that others will be distracted from worshiping God. Instead, women and men, I might add, should dress modestly in ways that don't call attention to themselves and in ways that aren't flaunting their wealth in ways that aren't flaunting their appearance basically what paul is is saying here is the very opposite of this there's this website that exists called preacher sneakers it's about all the all the hip young cool churches the ones that are growing really fast they have a guy who very rarely preaches the bible but wears tight jeans and like 1000 dollar shoes And so there's a website dedicated to these preachers and their expensive sneakers that they wear to preach in, pointing out, like, that guy paid $3,000 for that pair of Nikes he's got on. Paul's basically giving us the opposite of that. Let's not draw attention to ourselves in that kind of way. He goes on then, secondly, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach. You may not be aware of this. That's a wildly unpopular statement. <laughs> I have sat in classrooms, again, in conservative universities and heard Paul called a sexist and a misogynist. But friends, this isn't Paul's opinion. It's not Paul. Paul doesn't have a problem with women, and so he says mean things about them. That's not the Apostle Paul. This is the Apostle Paul representing the risen Christ speaking to us here. If we want to throw Paul's words out as toxic, which many do, or even to label them a product of ancient sexism, it's not that Paul's particularly toxic, it's that that whole culture was problematic. Let me tell you what we lose. The entire doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. Scripture. If Paul's words here are a product of backwards thinking, first century Roman culture, we lose the authority and inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. We might as well throw the whole thing out. Again, the context here, though, is that it's the gathered church. Paul says women are prohibited from teaching in the gathered church, from teaching the Bible in the mixed congregation of men and women. He is not forbidding women from teaching algebra or from teaching history or driver's education. In fact, Paul instructs women to teach other women in Titus 2. He says that the older women are commanded to walk alongside the younger women instructing them. He commends women's teaching of children to Timothy. In 2 Timothy... In the first chapter of that book, he reminds Timothy, Who did you learn the gospel from? Wasn't well, it your grandma? Wasn't it your mom? In a class several years ago when I was working on my master's, a professor outed me to the class, a class of about 25 pastors or people who want to become pastors. And he outed me as an evil complementarian in the class. So I sat there with a class of about 25 people and the professor debating me. I was not interested in the debate, but it was happening one way or the other. About half the class were women. Um, Emotions were high. The professor had revved people up about this topic. And one woman with tears in her eyes, shaking with anger, looked at me and said, you deny my call to ministry And every eye in the classroom just turned and looked at me like, we got you, you jerk. This is what you do to people. And I told her, I don't deny your call to ministry. I deny your interpretation of it. There there, there are a thousand things you could be doing for God, and you've determined there's only one. That's what I'm rejecting. The truth is, Even in the context of the church and ministry, there are countless things that women can do. There are so many things that they can do, but the truth is men and women are different. It's simply true. And because of that, Paul says, a woman should not teach the Bible to men when the church gathers, because men and women are created differently. That is not Paul's opinion. That is God's word. He goes on then, the third statement. Look again in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. So not only is teaching the Bible prohibited in the mixed congregation, so is exercising authority. There are, in this verse, two activities, not just one. The ESV study Bible has a note here. The presence of the word or, the Greek word oudē, between to teach and to exercise authority indicates that two different activities are in view, not just the one activity of authoritative teaching. And so what, what some people will do with this passage, especially those who, who want to hang on to like, yes, we, we have to accept that Paul said these things. We can't throw them out because it's the word of God, but we're still trying to figure out how to get women up into that pulpit because everybody gets mad at you if you don't. And so they say, what Paul is saying here is authoritative teaching is prohibited. So it's okay for women to teach as long as it's not authoritative. Now the problem with that is that's not what Paul says. That's not what Paul says here. And a bigger problem is there's no such thing as non-authoritative Bible preaching. This is the word of God. You're gonna stand up and open it up and say, here's what God says to you, and then go, it's not authoritative, though. Take it or leave it. No, that's not how the Word of God works. Others will say, what Paul really means is women shouldn't usurp authority. That's what Paul's getting at here. In other words, they can teach the Bible to men. They can even have authority as long as they're not stealing it out from under somebody else to whom it rightfully belongs, as long as they're not usurping the authority from someone else. The problem with that is, well, no one should usurp authority. It's not just a women thing. It it would be weird for Paul to say women shouldn't usurp authority in the church. He should just say no one should usurp authority in the church. It doesn't make any sense, but the bigger issue is that's not what the word means at all. The, the, the concept of usurping authority is, is nowhere to be found. The Greek word that Paul uses here is used over 80 times in other sources outside the New Testament, and it always means exactly the same thing, to exercise authority, to have authority. Not, not to usurp, not to steal, not to abuse authority. It just means to have and use authority. Well, others say then, well, women can teach as long as they're under the authority of men. So, so, so the men say to the woman, you can preach this morning and, and we, the pastor and elders of the church, have the authority that God has, has called us to in the church, but you preach this morning under our authority. That happens in a lot of churches that want to call themselves complementarian and faithful to, to this text. Again, though, it intentionally ignores the specifics of this verse and what's being said here. He says they cannot teach or exercise authority. And, friends, here's the truth. We don't have to be ashamed of that. That's God's good design. The world thinks it's awful. Many in the church think it's awful. We need not be ashamed of it. We ought to celebrate it. It's good. It's good. It's good to not use the fine china like a hammer. It's not denigrating to women's value or women's worth. It's actually elevating women. God is calling men to carry the heavy burdens. In that same classroom during the debate, the professor got hot under the collar with me. He said, why don't you tell me what it means then for you to be the head of your household? You say you're the head of your household? I said, absolutely. He said, why don't you tell us what it means then? And I said, it means I do all the heavy lifting. If there's something physically heavy to carry, I don't make my wife do it, I do it. And if there's something emotionally or spiritually heavy that needs to be carried, I don't make my wife do it, I do it. And he said, oh, that's a subversive take. (laughs) I said, no, that's what the Bible teaches. It's not subversive at all. This is what we believe. It's an elevation of women it's not a denigration of women. The truth is, those who teach will be judged more harshly. And God hasn't put that burden on women. The truth is, pastoring means you're not going to sleep well. And God hasn't put that burden on women. It's an elevation. It's not a denigration. Most of the women in this church are smarter than I am. It's not a matter of being smart. It's a matter of of. Creation, God's good design, and we ought to celebrate it. We ought to glory in it. It's good. It's good. It's for our good. He says then, rather she is to remain quiet. In regard to this activity, right? Here is this thing she ought not be doing. Instead, she should remain quiet. She shouldn't try to do that thing. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in church, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in in submission. As the law also says, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husband at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, he's not saying that women are not allowed to talk in church. What he's saying is this, they are to be in submission and not in authority in the church. To to be honest, over many years of pastoral ministry, when a family is disgruntled in the church, most of the time it's not coming from the man. It's often a woman who is not in submission and will not be in submission and a husband who is afraid of her. I have seen that over and over and over. My original notes, I ran it past Andrea, said nine out of ten times. She said that sounded mean. So I'll just say, most of the time, that's the deal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because I'm afraid of her. <laughs> I appreciate the wisdom of my wife because she's equal. equal. that's the reality. That's absolutely the reality. And Paul says, it has got no place. It has got no place in the family. It's got no place in the church. Furthermore, since the role of pastor and elder is rooted in authority, that's what it is. It's leadership. It is an authority role. It is specifically associated with the task of teaching. Women are prohibited by God from holding that office. It makes sense. It's also worth mentioning here, Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5, that the husband is the head of the wife and is called to lead her, as Christ is the head of the church and leads it, that that the wife is called to submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ. That is not possible if a woman is her husband's pastor. How does that work? Is there a switch you shut off when you walk out of the church building? That poor husband has only got a pastor on the hours that they're in the church building? No. It couldn't work. couldn't be. It goes on then, the fourth thing, starting again in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul doesn't leave us wondering why this is. Why am I saying the things I'm saying that people for generations will call me a a sexist about? He doesn't leave us wondering. He tells us. He gives us two reasons. First, Adam was formed first. Egalitarians will say that, that, that this teaching of male headship is a product of the fall in Genesis 3. It's part of the curse that came in the fall to sin. And since it's part of the curse... I've heard this many times. What that means is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has undone that curse. It doesn't exist anymore. Now, they don't do that with the other aspects of the fall. They never go on to say, and that's why none of you will ever, ever die. You won't age. Childbirth, it's going to be a breeze. No, they don't. They do it with this one because our culture hates this one. (laughs) Our culture can't argue with the fact that it really, really does take nine months for a baby to come along, and it's not going to feel awesome. But this one, we can go, no, 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 that's done away with. We can do whatever we want now. Paul doesn't root his teaching of men and women in the fall. Do you see where he roots it? He roots it in creation itself. Reason number one, Paul says, is Adam was formed first. There's no sin yet. This is creation, God's good creation, which God said was very good. In the beginning, God made Adam first, and then Eve was formed second out of man. And Paul says that means God had design in it. God had design in that husbands were designed to lead and wives were designed to respond to their husbands' leadership. And he then relates that directly to the church and the roles of men and women. These roles are not the product of the fall. They are the design of God's created order. They are very good. Second, then, he says, Adam was not deceived. Now when Paul says it was Eve who got deceived, not Adam, he's not implying that Eve is more gullible than Adam, that Eve is less righteous than Adam. He's certainly not saying that men are smarter than women. We all know enough men and enough women to know that can't possibly be true. What's he doing? Well, he's pointing to the fact that what Satan attacked right off the bat was God's created order. He intentionally was undermining God's created order. Eve should not have been the one dealing with Satan directly. She should have consulted her husband before making this monumental decision. This one law God has given us, and I think I'm equipped to figure it all out on my own without even talking to the other living human She should have sought her husband's counsel. And Adam, who in all likelihood was standing right there, should have protected his wife. He should have opened up his mouth and shut the mouth of the serpent. He should have silenced Satan's lies. They both failed miserably. But Paul says, Eve was deceived. Eve was deceived not Adam. And those are his two reasons that he gives. And again, we ought not be ashamed of those reasons. We rejoice in God's good design. Egalitarians, though, want to argue that none of this that Paul says applies to us anymore. And they say that, that the women in Ephesus were teaching false doctrine, and that's why Paul says this to Timothy here. They were teaching false doctrine. and so, so Paul said these things because women had infiltrated the church teaching heresy. Now again, when I say egalitarians, what I mean is genuine Christians who love the Bible and want to be faithful to the Bible, but they believe there's no distinction between men and women. I'm not talking about the world. The world doesn't even care about any of this. They just say it's a book of lies. So egalitarian is a, is a subset of the evangelical church. But so one of the first things they say is that's what happened. Women teaching heresies had infiltrated the church. They began teaching them, and Paul was trying to shut it down. And so he just made the blanket statement, look, women can't teach. Women can't have authority. we got to stop this. The problem is there's no historical evidence of that whatsoever. Someone at some point trying to figure out how to not throw Paul's words out but how to not have to submit to them went, you know what I think was probably going on? I think it was probably this. Makes sense to me. But all the false teachers that Paul ever names are men. He names some of them. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, he names false teachers. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, he names false teachers. They're always men. In Acts chapter 20, verse 30, he says, false teachers will arise, wolves will arise from among you, men from your own group. So we never are getting this thing about women infiltrating with their heretical false teaching. They'll also try to say, well, the women in Ephesus were uneducated. So they couldn't teach. They couldn't have authority because they were uneducated. They weren't equipped to do it. But now, oh, now it's so different. Now, Now we're not hampered the way they are. Our women are educated. And so this no longer applies to us. The problem is the women of Ephesus, we know, were very well educated. It's not true at all. It's not true at all that they weren't educated. Or they say this, this is one of those commands that applies to first century culture only. It, it applies to, to that culture, but we aren't expected to carry that all the way into 2022 where we are very smart and far better than they were. This was for that culture because they're so backwards, they just couldn't handle it. Again, the problem is Paul roots this command in creation, in God's very good creation. This is God's good design, transcending all culture. It applies to all times and all places. This is why it has been the position of nearly every Christian group for the last 2,000 years something that that diverges from this being considered mainstream at all is a very new arrival on the scene. Fifth then, verse 15, I got to hurry. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in the faith with love and holiness and self-control. What on earth does that mean? What a strange statement that is. Well, one thing we know because we have the rest of the New Testament and we never just lift a passage off and set it aside and consider it while not thinking of anything else that the Bible says. Since we don't do that, we know that Paul is not saying that women are saved by having babies. He's definitely not saying that. Not not saved in terms of our justification, which comes only by grace through faith. But this word saved is also used to describe coming to experience all aspects of our salvation. Coming into a fuller experience of our salvation. And so Paul is saying women will be preserved in the faith. Women will flourish when they remain faithful to God's design for them. And what better picture of a woman remaining faithful to God's design for her is there than childbearing? Women are designed by God to bear children and that is a thing men are not equipped to do. It is so uniquely and gloriously woman. So Paul points to that. What's his point? God made women as women and God made men as men. We ought to go all in on that and celebrate that. Women should act like women. Men should act like men that's Paul's points the specific roles and callings that God has given to us are equally beautiful and glorious but they are different and it's good it's it's best it's God's good design and so why are we even talking about this if you think this is controversial please come back the next two weeks it's going to get so much worse Why make a big deal out of this? It's a big deal because God's design is best. Because it's good. Because God is the creator. And he gets to tell us what he made us for. And how he wants things to be done. It's important because a rejection of God's good design always has consequences. The authority of scripture is at stake, even on this issue. The egalitarian position is a gateway drug to theological liberalism. It simply is. It is absolutely true. Wayne Grudem in his book, Evangelical Feminism, A New Path to Liberalism, traces what happened to several American denominations in that book. It always starts with a low view of Scripture. In other words, how can we find a way to side with culture over the plain reading of this text? Let's see what we can do. Let's see what we can figure out. Followed by the ordination of women, the the, the destroying of any distinctions, followed by the denial of any distinctions between male and female. Friends, most of the conservative Christian church has already gotten this far. Followed often by an emphasizing of God's femininity. We're seeing and hearing a lot about that, trying to find the feminine aspects of the triune Godhead followed by an endorsement of the homosexual lifestyle. If you doubt that that's true, I would encourage you to study the history of the United Methodist Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the Presbyterian Church USA, the Mennonites. This is exactly how it goes, over and over and over again. We see this pattern play out over and over and over again. But God's design is always best. God's design is good. God's design is beautiful. When men exercise godly, masculine, humble leadership, the church, families, women in particular, flourish. God's plan really works. It's a glorious thing to be a man created in the image of God. And it is an equally glorious thing to be a woman created in the image of God. We need both. Let me close by saying this. Your sinful flesh will fight against God's good design. We're told that right at the start in Genesis 3. Both men and women want to resist their God-ordained responsibilities and If you have tuned me out, tune me back in right now. Please examine your hearts. Please examine your lives. Please examine your actions and your attitudes. For women, there is a temptation to reject your role, your good and glorious and beautiful God-ordained role. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 says, as part of the curse of the fall, that you will try to control your husband. I might add that you will try to control your church. That's why so many churches are feminine in nature, and it's killing them. But since the primary burden of responsibility lies with men, let me challenge you directly, men, our sinful flesh rejects God's call for us to lead. It presents itself in a couple of different ways. One is passivity. Instead of doing the hard work of leading, we sit on the sidelines. We, we let someone else carry the burden that we're supposed to carry. So we let our wives make all the decisions because that's just easier. We let her be the one to take the lead with spiritual matters because we've got other things to attend to. We just don't want to do the work. We let her call the shots because we don't want to argue. What we're really doing is making her carry all the emotional burdens. What we're really doing is making her carry all the heavy weights that God designed us to carry. Brothers, hear me. Passivity is a sin. Lead. That's what God made you for. God made you for that. He designed you for that. You're built for it. Lead. Do you have a spiritual vision for your family? Are are you the driving engine in your family's church involvement? Is it you? Are you taking the lead? Are you taking responsibility? You you can't lead a godly woman without that. You cannot lead a godly woman unless you are leading, taking the lead. Stop being passive. But the other way this resistance to God's creation of us presents itself in men is harshness. Instead of doing the hard work of leading, we're just mean. We're rough. In our treatment of our families, we sit on our couch or on our chair or in our man cave or in our garage and we bark out our orders like a king. Our families tiptoe around our temperamental grumpiness. Brother, if that is you, hear me. They don't respect you, they are afraid of you. You're not succeeding. They just don't want to get yelled at by you again. Oh, that shouldn't be. You ought to be the safest person in the world for your wife and for your kids. Brother, repent if that's you. This harsh treatment of your family is a sin. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, if you are harsh with your wife, God is not listening to your prayers. He's angry with you. He's angry with you over the way you are treating your family. So brother, are you harsh with your wife? Are you harsh with your kids? Are you harsh with fellow believers? Are you harsh with unbelievers? Repent. Call on the Lord right now. And apologize to your family the minute this service ends probably before you come to this communion table. Oh well, brothers and sisters, let's embrace God's good design for us. It is glorious. We're built for it. We thrive on it. The church thrives on it. Our families thrive on it. We thrive on it. There are men I could I could point you to, women I could point you to who would say, I've been fighting against God's design in my life and now that I am actively trying to walk in it, what a difference it has made in my life. We're made for it. It's good. It's glorious. Let's embrace God's design for us as men and as women and let's strive to put sin to death. The result is joy. The result is health. The result is strength. The result is blessing. God designed us this way and he told us about it for our good and for his glory and it is a glorious thing. We will not be ashamed of it. We will celebrate it. I want to encourage you to come back the next two weeks. Next week we'll be talking about God's good design for human sexuality. We will not do so in a way that will Give the children nightmares. But we are going to talk about it, so be aware of that. The next week we'll be talking about God's good design of us in the image of God and the sanctity of human life, the Holocaust of abortion. And I would really encourage you to be here uh, for these messages. And then we'll go right back into Romans, and I would encourage you to be here for those messages. In fact, we should just come to church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living.